Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to All The Small Things with me, Venetia Lamana. Angie Tawari is a yoga, meditation and breathwork coach specialising in diversity, accessibility and inclusion. Her teachings show how we can incorporate powerful ancient rituals into our modern day lives. Angie has been listed as one of eight women breaking the bias in sports, fitness and wellness by Women's Health magazine. And her retreats have achieved multiple accolades, including being listed as one of the best in UK and Ireland by The Times and the best for beginners by Condé Nast Traveller. Angie has collaborated with businesses who want to learn about wellness, diversity and accessibility through corporate coaching sessions, hosting, featuring on panels and speaking with the media on topics across wellness, South Asian culture and trusting your intuition. And intuition is something we talk about towards the end of today's conversation. Unearthed is Angie's community platform that I am a proud member of. Its aim is to connect you with ancient Indian rituals to apply in your modern day life. Information to the platform will be linked in the show notes. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the whitewashing of yoga and how we can all learn to appreciate the practice rather than appropriate it. This way, we can create meaningful change so that it's respectful of its roots and inclusive for all bodies. There is a lot of information in this episode and it can be an uncomfortable listen at times because we've all participated in the appropriation of yoga. I know I have, but I encourage you to keep listening, sit with that discomfort and that way we can collectively truly create meaningful change. I want to say how grateful I am to Angie for being part of this conversation, for pushing for change and for really being so generous with her time. Here is Angie Tawari on All the Small Things. Angie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Let us begin as we always do. I'd love to hear if you have any kind of morning ritual to help you start your day and feel grounded. Well, firstly, thank you for having me. And I definitely do have rituals in place. It usually starts with just being aware of my breath first thing in the morning just checking in with how I'm breathing and kind of intuitively checking in and taking deeper breaths. So just trying to settle myself a little bit. I think it's easy in the morning to get up and want to rush on with my day. So I try and slow things down a little bit before I get started. And the second one is lighting some incense. I just love the smell of incense. And it's something that really reminds me of my childhood and being in India and my culture and my heritage and it's beautiful to me so those are two things breathing and lighting off the incense they sound wonderful I would love to hear about your journey to becoming a yoga teacher I know that you have been heavily influenced by your mum tell us about your childhood and kind of yeah how you came to yoga and then how it evolved Yeah, so definitely inspired by my parents and my family and watching 
the devotional practices that they had to something higher, to religion, to just having a faith. And I grew up in a Hindu household, but I was sent to a Catholic school. That was very much welcomed and, you know, knowing the Lord's Prayer since I was six, as well as knowing Om Jai Jagadish Hare, which is one of the one of the mantras that you sing to the Hindu gods. So it was quite a religious, but not specific to one religion childhood, which I think was really nice because it allowed me to be a lot more inclusive. And then when I was younger, I would practice certain yoga movements, yoga poses, yoga breathing techniques. And I didn't really know that that was yoga that we were doing. So when I discovered yoga in the West, I mean, this is all happening in the West because I was born and brought up here. But when I discovered yoga in the Western space, I guess, so in things like gyms and yoga studios, it was so different to what I'd seen from my family that I didn't actually see them as the same practice at all. I remember going home one day to my mum and saying, oh, mum, when I'm moving through the yoga asanas, basically this, this and this. And that word is pronounced asana or asan. And I was pronouncing it incorrectly. And she corrected me. And I was like, no, mum, trust me, it's asana. And my parents both were born in India and they only moved to the UK in their mid-30s and 40s. So I think that's a really important story to tell because that kind of summarises my journey through the practice where it's always been ingrained in my culture. It's always been within me, but I've kind of discovered it in two different ways. And then ultimately I've come back to that first way of discovery through my own unlearning of the way that it's been portrayed in the West as something that's so different that even me as someone who has brought up with the practices still didn't quite recognise it. And I try and bring that same compassion to people when I'm sharing things around cultural appropriation, because if I could be so misled like that, then there'll be others who are as well and causing unintentional harm because of the way that yoga is. It is just so different to what the traditions really are. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that will be very, very helpful for people to hear about. And I also find it fascinating that you saw them as two completely different things. The westernized version being very much like what you do in a studio, so separate to what I guess you learn through just being born into the family that you were born into, which feels more like a just way of life, right? Yeah, because the word yoga was never used. That's I think that's probably the main thing is that I didn't hear the word yoga, I heard the word for the posture. So there's a posture called Padmasana, which is known as lotus pose. It's quite a challenging one to do. You need to have quite open hips in order to get your knees in a particular position. So mum would say, oh, let me show you how to do Padmasana. But it wouldn't be the case of we're sitting down and I'm doing yoga with you kids now. I think that's why, because I didn't hear the word yoga, but I experienced it. And then when I heard the word yoga, it was different. And obviously what you see in class is quite different to what I was being taught at home anyway. So there was just a a disconnection there. But then it was a circling back and and then understanding and kind of having those, oh, this is the same thing. And this is, and then, then it started making a lot more sense. I'd love us to talk about the history of the ancient practice of yoga. When and where was it established and what is its significance? I think the first thing is to start with the word yoga. A lot of people will know this, but for those who don't, the meaning and where the word derives from is the Sanskrit word yuj, which is to yoke or to unite. So yoga is really about union. And the idea is it is is a spiritual practice. It is a spiritual science. 
and its union with Paramatman, which is the supreme consciousness, the concept of this divine within you. So these are pretty deep philosophical (laughs) topics. And there's so many ancient texts on the practice of yoga. So a well-known one amongst new yoga teachers or general yoga teachers, or maybe even some yoga practitioners who have taken it quite seriously and maybe gone into some of the scriptures would be Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. So the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, that's a book. But there's also the Bhagavad Gita. There's also the Upanishads. There's so many texts. And within these texts, quite confusingly, there can be some controversial and also contradictory topics. So what you might read in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is a book on Hatha Yoga, might say something slightly different to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. So ultimately, the word and the root is union with this divine consciousness within you. But there's so many different ways that you get there. And there are so many different steps that you can take. And I think that's where it can be a little bit confusing is which one's the right one? Do I balance all of my chakras? Or do I follow this eight step? Or do I follow these four steps of these laws? And it is a continual study because there's just so many ancient texts about the practice. Now, all these ancient texts come from ancient India. And there is a little bit, I don't know a huge amount about it, but there's a little bit that's written about how they also existed in Egypt way back when. So these are practices that were done predominantly between a guru, so a teacher and a student, and a one-on-one relationship where these practices were shared and you would go away from everything else in society, kind of shut yourself away and focus solely on connecting with this supreme consciousness, getting to this state of samadhi, which is this self-realization and an acceptance of yourself. And I'm imagining the learning never ends. It, It really doesn't because it's about the application of the learning too. And because these concepts are so deep and philosophical, and also in Sanskrit, the ancient language of India, It's about how you can take on a different meaning from what you're learning. Like you could read something five years ago and it can hit you one way and then you read the same thing five years later and actually you're taking a different meaning from it. A lot of the ancient texts are open for people to interpret them. And ultimately we're living a modern life as well. So it's the application of ancient wisdom into our modern life. Can we go and learn yoga and run away to the mountains and shut ourselves off from society and get to this highest place of consciousness and not have to deal with paying the bills or paying our mortgage or all these day-to-day things that you have to do? Not necessarily. That's not very accessible for people. And even the Vedas, one of the ancient texts, they talk about the householder. They talk about the person who owns a home and, and runs the home and the maintenance of that and that you can still do that and be on this spiritual pathway. But how do you make sure that you do both and you don't get carried away through being so attached to worldly pleasures and material wealth? You can still have material wealth and exist in the material world, but still have that spiritual root. So I think because of that and because of where we're at in our society, there's continual learning to be done. And you've got to be open to that as well. That makes me think about the kind of content that you create online and how you kind of constantly just asking people to do like little check-ins as opposed to like, right, let's set aside two hours once a month where, you know, you do a really long yoga class. It's like, how are we going to pull this into aspects of your life and kind of make it more of a daily practice? Let's talk about the whitewashing of yoga because it is deep rooted and very complex because of British colonialism. But it's really important for us to learn about and to talk about if we're to decolonize yoga. 
So let's dive into these colonial roots because this is a topic that you are so brilliant at speaking about. Oh, thank you. So when the British ruled India, it was about 200 years that they were ruling. I think the actual official dates are 89 years, but they were in the country for 200 years. So if they weren't officially ruling, they were still oppressing and changing up the whole of of ancient India. And, And obviously that ended in 1947, which is the partition. And that's when what was known as India was cut up into lots of different countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. And that's why when I refer to ancient India or celebrating those people who come from that area, I avoid saying India and I say South Asia. I think a lot of people link yoga to India, but then that's forgetting all of the other countries that once made up India that were cut into pieces because of the British rule. So one of the things and the links between the British rule and yoga and what happened at the time is that Brits wanted to convert everyone to being Christian. And they found yogis very non-conforming, too spiritual, quite weird with some of the practices that they would visibly do on the streets, kind of contorting their bodies in particular places or holding their arm up for a long period of time. And so the yogis were really suppressed by the British when they ruled, so much so that yoga and Ayurveda, which is known as the sister science of yoga it's a holistic well-being science and both of those practices were made illegal and banned so nobody was able to practice them freely so fast forward to today it can seem that you know it's yoga everyone should be able to practice it and I don't think that that is wrong I think yoga is for everybody it's for all human beings however we should understand the context Because when you understand the context, then you understand the systems that are in place to continue that white supremacy and continue that whitewashing of the practice and making people aware of looking at an industry and looking at what you see when you look at that industry and what's the prototype of what you generally see and and who belongs in that space or who do you think belongs in that space? Who's the default? And when you look at that, who's the default, who belongs in the space, you don't often see South Asian yoga teachers or South Asian well-being teachers there's a huge lack of representation of that community there's a huge lack of representation in other communities as well uh, within the yoga industry and that's another thing that isolates so many people who feel that it's not accessible to them because the appropriation has made yoga to be just about the physical postures which of course excludes so many people who aren't able-bodied who are injured who for whatever reason, are not able to fit their body into a particular shape. And ultimately, that makes people think, I'm really bad at yoga because I'm not flexible. That statement that everybody says, and you hear all the time, is is such a mirror up to this is how different the practice is from actually what it's supposed to be, union with the highest self within you. Can you see a connection between the two? Yes, like sometimes when you work towards a certain posture, there's a mental training that goes on there. There's an amazing benefit to that, but there's exclusion there. And there's an indication that this isn't for you. And until we challenge that, the system is in place to continue to support people who are generally, is what we see in yoga, white and slim and female. It will continue to uphold those people who are benefiting off ancient indigenous arts when the people who are from that culture they don't get those opportunities to work with the huge brands on a yoga retreat or a active wear brand deal or whatever it might be those opportunities are often 
for the majority group within that sector. I think it's helpful for me and of course listeners as well to think about how they perhaps first came to yoga. For me, it was, I was taken to, uh, so I was suggested to go to a yoga class run by a straight sized non-disabled white woman. And, you know, there was a lot of like hype around the class. It was pretty expensive, I would say. I would say it's probably like, I don't know, 15 pounds for a class. And there was like very kind of high energy pop music playing. And, you know, I'm grateful that I went to the class because it introduced me to this whole new world. But I think it's really, really important for us to reflect on our own position of privilege on this and to kind of perhaps think about how we came to this practice. You talk about this a lot, but none of the top three YouTube yoga teachers who have a combined 10.7 million subscribers, probably more now are South Asian. So why do you think dissecting our own privilege is a good starting point when we're trying to collectively dismantle the whitewashing of yoga? I think without acknowledging the privilege that by the way we all have I've got certain privileges as well I might be South Asian but I'm very light-skinned South Asian there's a lot of colorism in lots of industries in the yoga industry that, that exists as well so all of us can do this work but if we don't acknowledge what our privilege is then ultimately there's ignorance there and there can be an opposition whether we're aware of it or not to diversity and we're so uncomfortable about having these conversations and confronting ourselves and unpacking our thoughts because God forbid we discover we're racist. And then there's that, no, 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 but, I, but I'm not. And it's, you, you kind of have to have those uncomfortable conversations or watch things that make you challenge your thoughts and your thought patterns because that's where the growth happens. So if you're into the practice of yoga or general well-being, that's where your spiritual growth and that's where your well-being growth comes from because you can actually learn so much more about the people around you and instead of living in our own bubble being curious to the lived experiences of those around us so that's why it's so important to unpack our own privilege because then we can take a step back and yes you maybe feel really uncomfortable with it but only through that can you then make changes and there's so much research that you can do on your own so if you don't want to have a conversation with anyone And if you just want to do this work on your own, I actually think that's probably the best way of doing it. Use the internet, watch a documentary about different minority groups, about marginalized communities, about the context and the history and things that are set up in place to benefit the dominant group and then what part you can play in order to be a true ally and not be performative in your efforts. I did, I did a big article last year when the COVID crisis was really bad in India about if you're into yoga, then this is an issue that I really advise speaking up about because you've, you've taken from that culture and you're benefiting commercially from that culture. Yoga is an indigenous art. So it's a very yogic practice to actually do that work and unpack those thoughts and have the discussion. And not be afraid of getting something wrong, but know that if you do get something wrong, it's then how you deal with getting that wrong. Like, do you get something wrong and then you close yourself up in a box because you're so embarrassed and you're scared to do something wrong again, which I think a lot of people do? Or do you get something wrong and then learn from it and continue to learn? 
And until we're comfortable with getting things wrong, no change is going to happen. We have to be aware that when we're in those dominant groups, you've got access to a certain status, you've got access to certain benefits that a lot of people don't have access to. So you can use this privilege for the greater good. And it's just stepping into your power to know know that you can do that and, and be confident with it. I think that kind of acceptance of the discomfort, which is inevitable, is so vitally important. You know, I am aware that I have messed up so many times. And the moments that I have let shame sit and fester feels awful. And the only time I have started to feel better about it, about my mistakes, about my unconscious bias, whatever it is, the only point at which I start to feel better about it is when I accept it, acknowledge it, and then try and do better, apologize for it, and then try and do better. It's the only time you can remove that shame. Otherwise, I just feel like it continues festering. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also understanding the science behind it. So there's so much research that shows that if you are the prototypical in that industry so say for example if I was to ask you when you think of a yoga teacher what what do you think of I mean I would to my embarrassment think of a straight-sized white woman able-bodied probably blonde wearing some lululemon activewear yeah (laughs) It's so problematic. I have the exact same. That's my my thought pattern as well. And there's so many things in there because obviously that's ticking a lot of boxes of privilege, but also activewear is is very expensive and, and you can wear whatever you want to practice yoga. You don't have to be in any particular clothing. And look, I love activewear. So I do wear quite a lot of activewear, but I try and emphasize that actually. It, there's no such thing as yoga wear. But when we think about that prototype, understand that there's so much research that shows that when you are that prototypical in your field of expertise or whatever it might be, you feel resistance towards diversity because you see that as a threat. I think a lot of people will hate to hear that, but that is what research and studies have shown. I, I hope that that makes people feel a little bit okay with that they don't feel the shame because it's because of the way that it's been set up. If we view the yoga industry as a more accessible space, and we saw lots of different types of teachers in there, that where's the risk of diversity? There isn't any because the diversity already exists. But when the diversity doesn't exist, then it's a threat because it's something different. And that's the threat that drives the resistance. And then people are more uncomfortable about having the conversation. So it's getting past that. And I, I think until it's talked about more, and when I mean talked about, I mean acknowledged by festivals and brands, well-being businesses who are involved with yoga, or by the teachers within the space, then we're not, we're not going to get anywhere. And I, I don't think white yoga teachers are the problem, but I think they're a huge part of the solution. So let's talk about some of these solutions that are available to us. You mentioned wellbeing platforms, big businesses, sportswear brands, influencers and teachers with large platforms in power. Maybe let's take some of these examples and punch up a little bit and talk about ways that they could be doing more. So I know this is your this is your area of expertise. There's so much that white yoga teachers specifically who have a big following online could be doing that they just do not do enough. And it's okay to admit to mistakes and share your vulnerability that you don't know as much as you would like to know. Like I said at the beginning, if I'm going to tell my mum how an ancient Sanskrit word is pronounced, 
to someone who was born and brought up in India and practiced yoga every day, because I have, you know, no understanding of the connection to the roots, then you can admit your mistakes, but admit them and be vulnerable. But then also in, in the same vein, elevate those who are doing the work and send people their way. Always being curious to, to understanding what other experiences people are going through and how you can support them. If it comes from those people who have millions and millions of followers, it then has a knock-on effect to the studios and the festivals and the brands. I think it's probably work from both that's needed. I hate that something big and awful in the world often has to happen in order for change to happen. But often that is the case. We look at other systems of oppression in the world and we see that when something really big and bad happens and then everyone's talking about it, you cannot be the brand or the teacher that's not saying anything. I want to get to that space before that big bad thing happens. I'd love the industry to get to a space where we're making that change for the better because we want to make the change for the better and we want to make the yoga industry a more inclusive space because the yoga industry is representing something very different to actually what yoga is supposed to represent. It makes me think about how so many of us think that yoga is just a hardcore workout all of the time. It's okay to like a fast-paced practice, but also unpick and unpack why you don't want to do a slower practice because arguably a slower practice could be much more challenging for someone than a harder practice because in a harder physical practice you're focusing you're moving through and a slower practice for some people it's more of those thoughts are coming up it's a bit more challenging maybe mentally than it is physically so explore all those beautiful things that yoga has to bring to you the postures is one tiny tiny element of a much much bigger deeper practice and we're missing all of the depth and that's where the dilution is that's why the practice has been diluted someone in a training the other day said to me I don't think and I argued against my point when I was (laughs) talking about how yoga has been diluted and said I don't, don't think it has been diluted I think it's evolved and I think that's a good point to talk about that You can still have a practice that has been heavily diluted. The dilution of what it used to be doesn't stop from it evolving. Ultimately, we have to look at the practice of yoga because it is ancient and look at how we can interpret it and apply it. And maybe that's where the evolution side of it comes from. But that doesn't mean that it's not been diluted. And, you know, you look in the industry and you see what's going on. And it's really obvious to see that. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So let's look at some common examples of 
cultural appropriation um, in yoga. I was thinking this morning about a t-shirt I had probably about seven years ago that said namaste in bed, which is one example. And then also I was thinking about different forms of actual classes. Puppy yoga pops up a lot because, you know, who doesn't love a puppy? And also hip hop yoga is, is another big one that we've spoken about before. And some of these can feel really harmless, right? Like when I bought that t-shirt that said, now I'm going to stay, like now I'm going to stay in bed. That was just me trying to signal as a human that I enjoyed yoga and I also enjoyed sleeping. But it's really problematic. So yeah, let's let's talk about some of these kind of slightly insidious um, forms of taking this culture and, and slamming it on a t-shirt. Mm. I love that you've admitted to that though, because I think that's, you know, plays into everything we've been saying and the narrative of being vulnerable and sharing your mistakes and admitting your mistakes. And I think when you do that as well, you're much less likely to get the backlash because you're actually confronting that within yourself because you've clearly done the work to unpack why that wasn't appreciating the culture. But I think it's a hard line for people to see. Oh, it's got the word namaste on, like that's, you know, a word linked to Hindu culture, Indian culture, South Asian culture, yogic culture. And like you said, you like yoga. And so that's why the context and the history is so important to understand. Because if you don't understand that, then it does feel really harmless. And everybody loves puppies and everyone loves goats and everyone loves drinking. So things like beer yoga, wine yoga, puppy yoga, goat yoga, it can all feel... Goat yoga? I've not heard of goat yoga. Oh yeah, I think they put goats on you. I think they put little baby goats on you, which I mean, that's super cute. I, I love animals. But the problem is, is that yoga has been perceived as not being enough as it is. So you've got to add something gimmicky on there. And that detracts from and undermines and disrespects the depth of the practice and how spiritual it is. You know, you can do a yoga practice and then play with some puppies later, but you don't have to call it puppy yoga. But the reality is, is you're calling it puppy yoga because you're making an ancient practice into a commercialized gimmick. And it is going to get more people to come because it's more interesting than just yoga. But then you're perpetuating this idea that yoga isn't enough and that yoga is just this thing I got asked to do puppy yoga the other day I was honestly so shocked some some puppy yoga organization reached out to me and I was like have they read about anything that I talk about (laughs) they told me the whole schedule as well they're like 15 minutes of yoga 45 minutes of playing with puppies and 15 minutes of yoga but you're kind of on your mat the whole time so you know it feels really harmless it feels really fun but ultimately you're continuing to commercialize an ancient indigenous art and mix in things that it it doesn't yoga doesn't need to have puppies with it yoga doesn't need to have goats with it you don't need to mix alcohol with it it's just enough as it is on its own and that's that's a big part of the cultural appropriation is how it's linked to capitalism and commercialization of that art and that with that commercialization comes a huge barrier between what people can afford and not afford. 15 pound class is probably more than that now for a drop-in class. Teachers, by the way, don't get paid anything near that. For a class in the city, when I was teaching classes, I'd be paid 30 pounds. But if you're paying 15 pounds to come and the room is full of 30 people, do the maths, you know. So teachers don't get paid hugely well by studios And certainly studios are nowhere near as diverse as they should be. And when we're talking about cultural appropriation, specifically in the South Asian yoga teachers, you barely see them there represented. That's another way that it's been appropriated. Festivals, we were talking the other day about yoga festivals that had a whole white lineup of yoga teachers. 
no view of, okay, do we need to be more conscious of who we're getting in, of how we're presenting this practice or of who we're working with. And I think that comes back to when we were talking about active wear brands or sports brands or wellness brands or whatever it is. Who are you working with? And and if you're an individual, who are you learning about yoga from? And just doing a bit of a recce through your social media, who are you following on social media to learn about the practice of yoga? And trying to make that as diverse as possible. Because ultimately, the more diverse you make it, the more included you're going to feel. Because you're going to see these different experiences and these different sides of the practice and also these different elements. To your point around the t-shirt as well, there's so many clothing tops and leggings that have got Hindu gods on them which is just not something you would ever do you know as a Hindu you know you don't walk around wearing a top with your favorite god on it the gods are seen to be really divine and you don't put them on the floor you don't wear them and again it seems cool because it's oh I've got this god on my top and I've learned about this god through yoga perhaps and I'm really into this god but within that is such an ignorance of how those gods should be treated which is something that you would really only know if you were within the culture or if you had done your research to understand how to respect those gods properly or respect the words that we say in the practice of yoga and how we can pronounce those correctly and, and the importance of doing that. There's a lot for us to unpack and think about, isn't there? There's so many different things. And I think maybe that's why it can feel overwhelming for people listening to this, that, oh, there's so many different places I could go wrong. But there's also so many different places you could go right. And if you look around and you feel like no one else is really doing this stuff and no one else is really caring when I, when I say no one else, I mean, there are a lot of white yoga teachers who aren't really doing a huge amount. Be one of the first to do it or be someone to inspire those around you. It's a domino effect and it has to ripple on for the change to be made so that all of those different ways that we culturally appropriate can actually be turned around and we can actually appreciate the culture instead. If people want to become a yoga teacher themselves or develop and deepen their practice do you think they should be going to India to learn I think that creates a huge again financial barrier to becoming a teacher and obviously is not environmentally friendly so those two key reasons why I would say quick answer is no I guess the third reason I would say is you know you still got to be careful if you go to India and you're looking to learn from Indian yoga teachers there are a lot of yoga teacher trainings that are set up by people who are not from South Asia. So, you you know, you might not get the experience that you want. It is another place where change can happen, I think, because that's where you learn about yoga. And that's where you learn about whether you should or shouldn't care about the diversity side of it. And if, none of, if that's not being taught in your in your training, then why would you think it's important so I would say when you are doing a training and you want to become a teacher, not so much focusing on the location, but more focusing on what's within the course, who are the teachers who are teaching it, and trying to learn a little bit more, asking questions, and supplementing your study with books that are out there that maybe talk about these topics, about fat phobia within yoga, about how you can make people feel more included, about the trans community within the yoga space like try to supplement your studies with those books or with watching documentaries or whatever it is so you've got a more rounded view because when you are a teacher you are going to be coming across every single person from lots of different walks of life so if you only know how to teach the prototype how are you going to make people feel fully included in a practice that's about union with themselves they're not going to feel like they can unite with themselves 
if you're teaching in a particular way and creating a space that doesn't feel safe for them. And ultimately, it's a very, very vulnerable practice. So we have to be where we're doing our training, really asking those tough questions, because where you train is ultimately going to change how you teach, which is so important. In terms of that further reading and kind of resource lists, you have those listed on your Instagram as well, which will be listed in the description box, which is super helpful for folks. Do you think it's okay to play music in yoga classes? And if so, what kind of types of music? Or do you think it's an absolute no-no? I think it is up to the individual to decide Again, all of my responses on this are my thoughts and my opinions. I think this is another thing is that people often think that South Asian yoga teachers will all think the same. I know there are South Asian yoga teachers who will say you should absolutely not play any music. It's about getting connected more to your internal divine. How can you do that when there's an external sound that's happening that's detracting you from that? I know that's one view. My personal view is, well, we know, scientifically speaking, sound is incredibly healing. And it can really help people melt into the practice a little bit easier. Again, that's not for everyone. Some people might be distracted by the music, but I find that some people do really enjoy sinking into that. So there'll be some meditations which I teach, which are completely silent. And then there'll be other classes where I will put music on. I also on my membership platform link playlists so people can use a playlist that I've suggested if they want to play music, but if they don't want to, they can do the class and listen without anything in the background. So I don't think there's any hard and fast rule for me personally. I think it's up to what you find helps you. But I also think it's good to play around with it. So maybe try a class and see how it is with no music at all and see what happens, see what you uncover, and then try one with music and see how that changes for you and how that shifts. Like it's an exploration as well. Do you think we should be saying namaste at the end of a yoga class and... Perhaps also it would be useful for folks so they don't already know the kind of significance and the true meaning behind the word. So namaste literally translates as, if we go back, the meaning of Sanskrit is my soul bows to the divine soul within you. So it's kind of a connecting saying. But in South Asia, in families and friends, like you say namaste when you're greeting somebody. So it's basically a hello. That's always as what I've known it as. And I found when I did my training and even when I was just going to yoga classes before I knew too much about it, that I was saying namaste at the end of the practice, just basically completely without thinking about it. And I think that's somewhere that we go wrong. We say these words without any knowledge of actually what do they mean. So I think the first step is be aware of what these words mean, whether it's namaste, whether it's om, whether it's shanti. If you hear a teacher say it in class, don't be afraid to ask that teacher or do your research afterwards, because otherwise you are just saying things without having any context of what it means. I don't think it really makes sense to be said at the end. However, if you take it for that literal meaning of my soul bows down to the divine within you, I guess you could say that at any point when you're closing off a class. So I don't think there's any, again, rule about it. But there's definitely a lot of us South Asians that get really confused when you hear namaste at the end of a class. Because from what we know, it's more of a hello. So it's tricky. What I try and do when I'm educating people is just give them the facts. This is what it means and this is it. I try not to tell people what they should or shouldn't do, but I will tell you what a lot of South Asians view of that word being used at the end. And it's that they think it's pretty weird and kind of laugh, laugh about it. So that's useful for us to know. Um, (laughs) I want to kind of start to wrap up and talk about cultural appreciation 
as opposed yeah. to cultural appropriation because this is something that you speak about and I think it is vitally important. So perhaps we could talk about one of the kind of key differences between the two things and maybe you'd like to share an example of what you think is a good example of appreciation not appropriation. So I think when we look at the pronunciation of certain words, so we're just talking about namaste, we're talking about om, we're talking about shanti. So om is the sacred sound. It's the primordial sound of the universe that connects all of us together. You might hear it being chanted. Shanti means peace. You might hear that being said at the end of the class, om, shanti, shanti, shanti. When we're saying those words as teachers, but also as students, there's so much importance placed on how we're pronouncing those words. One, because they are sacred words and they, they are to be treated with a lot of respect. Two, because those words are sun- in Sanskrit. Sanskrit is a language that is so focused on sound and the way that we move our mouth in order to create certain sounds, which has an effect on our body because of the vibrations that are, we're making. So when you're doing a chanting practice, you're changing the vibrations within you. So you're changing and shifting your energetic state. If you're pronouncing the word om incorrectly or shanti incorrectly when you're chanting those words, you're not getting the same benefits of chanting those words correctly. So that's another reason why it's so important. I guess it's to respect the culture and, and not appropriate it, but also it's to get the benefits from it. And so I think an important signal of whether you're appropriating or appreciating is you can absolutely use those words in your practice and we should, but if we're using them, you're appropriating if you're not explaining to the class, if you are a teacher, what they mean, or if you're a student and you're just saying it without really even noticing it. And an appreciation is doing your research to understand what it means and doing your research to understand how to pronounce that word correctly and try out a few times, test it out. It's a different language, it's ancient Sanskrit, so it's not necessarily so easy for everyone to be able to do, but just practice. And if we're able to say words like Tchaikovsky, then you can chant Shanti correctly. Presumably also, this is where uplifting others comes into play. Doing the work to unpack your own privilege is so important when we're looking at how to make yoga more inclusive and accessible and diverse, but also specifically around how do we elevate South Asian yoga teachers or people who are from that culture who feel hugely excluded from the practice? Where do you recommend them? Where do you put their names forward? How do you reshare their work? How do you support what they're doing? How do you learn from them? And when I say learn from them, another form, which I'm seeing this as, as almost a microaggression, I would say, within cultural appropriation is going to brown yoga teachers to get them to talk about cultural appropriation and cultural appropriation alone, but then going to your white yoga teacher to run a well-being retreat for a load of press, for example. You can't just go to the brown yoga teacher to hear about all of the problems in the industry. That teacher knows how to teach the practice. And so working with South Asian yoga teachers, not just on the issues that exist within those communities and within the industry, but also across everything. And I think the last one would be appropriation, regardless of whether you like the yoga poses or you struggle with them, but you do them all the time. If you're only practicing the yoga poses and that's all you think yoga is, you have got a hugely appropriated view of what it is. So a way to appreciate is to just unpick and dive into what other elements of the practice are there that you could try out. Even if you don't really want to try them out, just being aware of them. So trying to expand your learning of the practice is another way to appreciate it. 
does not mean that you have to stop doing your vinyasa or your restorative or anything like that. You can keep up with all of that. That's amazing. There are benefits, huge benefits to the physical practice, but it's not the be all and end all. And just being aware that that's an appropriated view if you think that yoga is just about flexibility. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm interested to know what are your three ways perhaps that you incorporate the practice or perhaps Ayurveda into your every day that folks might not instantly think of as yoga that bring you a lot and you know make you feel nourished the first one is my breathing constantly aware of what's going on with my breath it's a direct link between what's happening in your brain and your emotions so I will watch my emotions and then watch my breath or I'll watch my breath to then see what's happening with my emotions and that will happen if I'm at my desk and I'm going through emails and an email's come up And I can feel that I'm getting annoyed or stressed. And then I'll be like, what's my breath doing? And naturally, if you are more stressed and you are more anxious and angry, your breath is going to go a bit more sharp and shallow and you're going into that fight or flight part of the body. So you want to relax the body and breathe a little bit more deeply. So that might just mean me sending the breath a little bit more further down, trying to breathe a little bit less shallowly and more fully. I might place my hands on my lower belly. I might close my eyes and just take a minute for myself to focus in on my breath. Or the other way around, I'm really lethargic, I'm struggling to focus, I actually need to energize myself a little bit more, then I might do a breathing technique that's going to help me increase my focus and increase my energy by increasing oxygen to my body. So getting myself into a hyper oxygenated state, which I think is another thing that people don't talk about so much. We think about yoga as relaxation and calming alone, but there's so many benefits in terms of memory improving and focus and all of those kind of things. So definitely the breath, that's number one. I say number two is intuition. That's a really big one for me. So tuning in with my instinct, checking with my intuition. How do I feel about this particular situation? What is my gut actually saying? You cannot do that without awareness. The the Sanskrit word for that is chip. You have to have that chip, that awareness first and really listen to it and tune into it because we've all been in that situation where we look back and we're like, I just knew. But I didn't go with it because we didn't have a rational reason. We didn't have a scientific-based reasoning as to why we felt that way. And that is what we're all looking for in society because we're told, go to the external source to get the validation and to get the answers. And that creates a dismissal of what's happening within us. So the yogic practice can help you be more intuitive, whether that's intuitive eating that you want to do, whether that's being intuitive about how a friend makes you feel, Whatever it is, being more intuitive and and listening to my instincts and trying to be guided by that. And then I would say the third one would be finding something that isn't necessarily yoga. So for me, I know that going on a walk in the park just makes me feel so good when I'm doing it. When I get back, I feel refreshed. I feel like I've hit that reset button. It is ultimately a form of the practice of yoga because it's getting me to be more united with myself. It's allowing me to change the way that I perceive things. But people wouldn't necessarily think of it as yoga. So I I say, find what's the yoga to you. And it might be going on a run. It might be going for a walk. It might be sitting down and watching your favorite show. But whatever it is, find things that help you get to a state of balance and just make them your non-negotiables. Can I do this three times a week? Or can I do this every single morning? Whatever it is, we were talking about rituals at the beginning. What rituals do you need to implement to help you get closer to uniting within yourself, which is ultimately what the practice of yoga is trying to get us to do. I love that you brought up intuition and um, that kind of gut feeling as well, because the older I get, the more I realize just how 
important it is for us to deeply connect with that because our intuition and our gut always knows. Um, So thank you so much for sharing those with me. How would you feel about a quick fire round? Let's do it. Quick fire with Angie. Wake up early or have a lion? Oh, have a lion. Chai (laughs) or coffee? Chai. Hair oil or Ayurvedic face masks? Hair oil. In the trees or by the sea? In the trees. TikTok or Instagram? Instagram. Fiction or non-fiction? Non-fiction. No, fiction. Podcasts or Netflix? Podcasts. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Routine or spontaneity? Oh, routine. I wish it was spontaneity, but... (laughs) I love that. And my final question that I ask everyone is, what is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved? accepting where I'm at I'm I'm such a what's next what's next more 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 more. I talk about that really openly and I run well-being retreats and I'm, I'm in there with everyone saying this is what I need to work on because I am a perfectionist and I've you know I it doesn't mean I'm not grateful for things that have happened but I know in the back of my mind it's worrying to do the next thing and I know that that's something that I have to keep in check and because if I don't keep that in check it's the one thing that is very inflammatory to me as in mentally it's inflammatory to me so it's great having that drive and that passion but I would love to make sure that I'm constantly being on top of that and my future self knows that that's important to keep in check basically finding the balance between being a hard worker and striving for more but being content with where you're at and knowing that what you're doing is enough I love that so much. Thank you so much for everything you have shared today. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so happy to be a fan of you and to be learning from you. And I'm really, really grateful for everything that you've given us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Venetia. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please do share it with a yoga loving friend or perhaps on your Instagram stories. You could also leave it a five star review on your podcast player. That really helps get the word of the podcast out there. As always, please do check the show notes for useful links and related episodes. And I will see you very soon for a brand new episode. Until then, I'm wishing you the best possible day. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.